If you have your Bibles, if you need a Bible, raise your hand and we'll get one right to your seat. Boy, we're going to pick up our uh, study in Revelation, chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and we'll get one right to your seat. Um, we had a, another announcement. Maybe you noticed it when you came in the church this morning. A couple of trees are missing. Those gumballs... They are from the pit. That's all I got to say. <laughs> They've been a part of this church for as long as I've been here. And every single fall, I mean, they are just absolutely horrible. And, uh, and so we said, all right, we're just not going to get rid of the gumballs. We're getting rid of the trees. So praise the Lord that, that, uh, that we had the funds to do it. And they are gone. And uh, we'll get some other landscaping. It will clean up a little bit more. But uh, it really is a blessing to have have them gone. The other thing I wanted to say, um, <laughs> we're having communion this morning. I got rid of those nasty cups that we had last time. <laughs> the juice tasted weird. The, the little bread was really weird. And so we're back to the regular juice, but we put, they, they make these little square crackers. And so we put those in individual cups. And so we'll be passing out cups both times. Uh, this morning, and so don't go, what, you're messing up, I got a cup, no, it, it's got a little piece of bread in it, and so uh, we're going to do that until um, till it feels safe that we can just put all the bread in the tray, but at this point, we just want to um, try and keep things as safe as possible, and not so distracting by tasting horrible, um, and so, <laughs> so that just so you know, before we're going to get to communion, Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13, Jesus is telling the apostle John in verse 7, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door and no one can shut it. If you have a little strength, you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they're Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The title of my message this morning is A Church in Revival. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together to be in this place where we can be in your word, and we recognize and we know, Holy Spirit, you are here to teach us and instruct us in all things that pertain to life, to godliness, that we find in your word. We pray, Father, that we would be open to hear not just information, but application in our lives. And we do pray for anyone who's joined us this morning that does not have a personal relationship with your son, Jesus Christ, or not Born again today, Lord, would you especially touch their heart, reveal yourself to them in a way they can understand that they might respond to the gospel and give their lives to you this morning. Thank you for this time together, Lord. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. Well, we are now at the second to the last church of the seven churches of Revelation. This church is the Church of Philadelphia. Church of Philadelphia was a very special church in that it was one of the only two churches that of the seven that didn't receive any criticism, any condemnation, or blame from Christ. In fact, Jesus said that, that the day will come when all will know that I have loved you, he says in verse 9. So this was a favorite church of Jesus. Now, there's no such thing as a perfect church. There are good ones, but they're not perfect ones because it's been said if you find a perfect church, go, go to it because you'll ruin it. And that's it because it'll no longer be perfect, which is true. The church is made up of imperfect people. We all have our flaws. We all have our mistakes. Speaking of mistakes, I came across some bulletin bloopers. Not mine. I put enough of those in myself. But this is one I found. These were actual typo arrows from bulletins, real church bulletins. Maybe words misspelled or, or mis, was, uh, comma left out or just changed. Just a little bit. Let me give you a few of them. Thursday night, prayer potluck and medication to follow. I think it's supposed to be meditation, okay. Remember in prayer the many who are sick of our church. In our church. How about this one? A bean supper will be held on Tuesday evening in the church hall. Music will follow. It's kind of a bad one. For those who have children and don't know it, we have a nursery downstairs. This one. The rosebud on the pulpit this morning is to announce the birth of David Allen Beltzer, the sin of Reverend and Mrs. Beltzer. <laughs> Two more. Martha Belch, a missionary from Africa, will be speaking tonight at Calvary Memorial Church in Racine. Come tonight and hear Martha Belch all the way from Africa. <laughs> Last one. At the evening service, the sermon topic will be, What is Hell? Come early and listen to our choir practice. <laughs> I don't know about that. Innocent misprints. Mistakes. So they point out a fundamental truth. Namely, we all have bloopers. We all have problems. We all have faults. We all make mistakes. And so did this church of Philadelphia. But even still, it was a solid church. Of the seven churches that we read about and have read about, this is the one that we most want to be like. Let's look now at why they were such a great church. If we're taking notes, we're going to look at two things. Number one, four ways in which they were a great church. And number two, four promises because they were a great church. Now we'll spend less time on point number two, so you know that as we get into the study. Now when you hear the name... Philadelphia. What do you think of? Yeah, Philadelphia cheesesteak sandwich is food. That's what I think of. Food. Or Philadelphia cream cheese. You know, food. Or, or maybe you think of the Liberty Bell. Or maybe you think of Rocky Balboa. You know, dun, 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 you know Rocky in Philadelphia. And, but I think we need to think of this church, Philadelphia, as a church in revival. Most people know that the word Philadelphia means uh, you know, brotherly love. But did you know that William Penn, the founder of this historic American city, named it after this obscure city in Asia because he wanted it to be known as a place where 
people could worship in freedom. Now, historically, the biblical Philadelphia was located 28 miles southeast of Sardis. But man, those churches were different as far as night and day goes. Where Sardis was a dead church, Philadelphia was a revived, alive church. They had a church that their vision was to reach the lost. They loved God's word. They applied God's words to their lives. They were faithful and obedient to the Lord. And as a result, we read that God set before them an open door of opportunity. And that really is the way the Lord works. If you're faithful in a little, the Lord will continue to open up doors of opportunity for bigger things, for greater things. Now, prophetically speaking, Philadelphia speaks of the church age that started during a time known as the Great Awakening. It was a, an age uh, that was just came after the time of the Reformation, starting in the 18th century to this present day. In England, in England the, the day of the awakening began with the Puritan movement. The Puritans had men like John Bunyan. He wrote the, the famous book, The Pilgrim's Progress. John Newton, he wrote uh, The Amazing, Ama- Amazing Grace, the song Amazing Grace. The awakening also brought about uh, the Wesleyan revival, George Whitfield's preaching throughout England. In America, the Great Awakening brought about a man named Jonathan Edwards, a visionary for Christian missionaries. Hudson Teller, who brought the gospel all the way to China. Man, this was a time of so many great evangelists of church history as they just emerged. George Whitfield, John Wesley, Charles Spurgeon, Charles Finney, Dwight Moody, Billy Sunday. I take it all the way up even to the late Billy Graham and his son Franklin Graham and even Pastor Greg Laurie's as thousands of people are coming to faith in Christ, even to this day, reaching people. You see, the ashes of this deteriorating Reformation Sardis church, God's Spirit brought new light and new life and a vibrant awakening throughout the Christian church. Now, this brings us to our four, uh, first point in the four ways in which this was a great church. First one, they were a great church because they were a church under authority. Look at verse 7. And to the angel, or pastor of the church in Philadelphia, write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. Two things Jesus says of himself here. Of himself here. He's holy, number one, and he's true, number two. Jesus is holy. And throughout the Old Testament, God is revealed as holy. He is perfect in holiness. Holy means to be set apart, to be distinct. God is holy in the sense that he is morally perfect. His character has no flaws whatsoever. But more than that, it means that he is, he is completely removed from any sin whatsoever. Isaiah the prophet records God as the Holy One, where, God, where, we, where we read in Isaiah 40, 25, to whom then will you liken me, or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One. Speaking of the Lord. Isaiah forty three fifteen. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. See, the, the phrase Holy One is both a title of character and of His deity. Because Jesus here is revealing that He is the Holy One, equal with God the Father. Secondly, we read that Jesus is true. Now, there are two Greek words for true. The first one is alethes, means true as opposed to false. The other one is alethenos, which means true in the sense of real versus unreal. Here Jesus is saying, 
He's the real deal. He is a source of reality. Especially in the city of Philadelphia where there were so many false gods and goddesses. Jesus says, hey, he is the one true God. Now Jesus can claim to have all authority and what he's going to say because of who he is. He goes on, he says, he is one who has the key of David. Now we know in chapter 1, Jesus holds the keys of hell and death. Uh, but here it's the keys to salvation and blessing. Let me give you an example. If I walked up to the White House and I said, I'd like to meet the president and I need to talk with President Trump, they would tell me to get lost. But if I walked up with, say, Baron Trump, you know, the son's president and, and uh, the president's son, reverse that, and he says, hey, Tom's with me. We want to go see my dad. Guess what? I'm in. Why? Uh, you know, I, I'm with Baron Trump. He has the authority to get me in to see the president. In the same way, we that belong to Christ, now he, Christ has the authority and the ownership to not only get us into heaven, that, but that, that means that God has a tomorrow for us. He has a plan and a purpose for our lives right now. We're told in Isaiah 22, 22, where Jesus takes this quote from, he says, The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder, so he shall open and no one shall shut, and he shall shut and no one shall open. It's there that Eliakim, the steward of King Hezekiah, was entrusted by the king with the keys to the palace. No one came to approach the king except through Eliakim. Same way with us in Christ. Jesus has the keys. He has the authority. He opens the doors for us to our Father in heaven as we will see that no man can shut it. No man. If we're all in prison, we would still have access to God our Father. In illness, in death, in life, in youth, in old age, in achievements, in disappointments, always in Christ, there is access. There's open door to God and no man can shut it. The door of prayer is always open to the Father. Writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 4.16, Therefore let us come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can only become boldly before His throne because of what Jesus Christ has done for, for us. His authority can make it happen. Now this brings us to the second way in which this was a great church. B, they had divine opportunities. Look at verse the beginning of verse 8. Again, he says, C, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. So what is this open door that Jesus is referring to? I think the Apostle Paul explains it pretty clearly in the book of Colossians, chapter 4, verse 3, with what he asked for in prayer. He says this, he says, Meanwhile, praying also for us, that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains. He was praying for a door to open so he could talk about Jesus Christ to others that don't know the Lord. Further on, Paul talks about this door in 2 Corinthians 2.12 where he says, Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord. It was a door that Jesus opened for what? To preach the gospel. That's the door that Jesus is speaking of here in verse 8. And that should be our same prayer, that, that God would be uh, opening up divine opportunities, that doors would be opened, that we would have appointments to preach the gospel to the people that don't know the Lord. But the question is, you know, what will we do when we see that open door? 
I think a lot of times we just are not thinking about sharing our faith. We get wrapped up in our own little world and we're not really thinking about others and we're, we're thinking only of ourselves and we forget that the, the fact that there are people out there that are dying and on their way to hell and they need to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, Oh, my brothers and sisters in Christ, if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay and not madly to destroy themselves. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. I say amen to that. Listen, there are doors that have opened in our lives today. Watch for them. Maybe that person that was closed off to the gospel a year ago Things might have happened in their life. This whole COVID-19, man, it's opened up a whole plethora of opportunities to share the gospel with people. Seeing things going on in our world, people are going, are we living in the end times? Is this really things happening? We have doors like never before to share the gospel. I think, sadly, a lot of people treat the gospel like gun collectors treat their guns. You know, gun collectors, they go, look at this gun I got from the Civil War right here hanging on the wall. Man, check it out. Look, man, it's in perfect condition. Check out this new pistol I got. And they sit around and they clean their guns and they talk about their guns and they read magazines about their guns. That's nice. My suggestion is take that gun out and shoot something. Say, Tom, you're kind of freaking me out, Tom. I understand it's an illustration. And I said, shoot something, not someone. (laughs) My point is, people treat the gospel the same way. They talk about the gospel. They debate about the gospel. They get in arguments over the gospel. They defend the gospel. Here's my thought. Use the gospel. (laughs) Preach the gospel. Get the gospel out. Now, the apostle Paul, he had open doors to preach the gospel. But that didn't come without problems. 1 Corinthians 16.9, he says, For a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So doors open. It's an effective door. I've got great opportunities. But man, people are coming against me. And we need to recognize that's going to happen. There will be opposition. Just because a door opens doesn't mean that it's always going to be smooth sailing. Sometimes people think, well, there's a door for me to share this gospel and it's going to be a breeze and and the whole world's going to respond with, what must I do to be saved? Can you pray with me right now? It doesn't always work that way. Be nice if it did. But an open door, even though it's an effective door, will almost always have opposition. And we'll look at this in a moment. But Satan doesn't want to see people coming to Christ. And because of that, he's going to come against you as much as he can. But don't get discouraged by the opposition. Rather, get excited. Hey, there's an open door for me. And I think of all the open doors that we've had just in the last 50 years. I mean, uh, you know, Russia was barred from from receiving the gospel. I remember going there in in 1995 and just the gospel had been opened up to, to, to there. Places like Iran right now. There's an underground church going on in Iran made up of a lot of, of ex-Muslim women that have given their life to, to, to Jesus Christ. There's like, a, like a, a revival happening in Iran that we don't hear about, we don't see. Places like Syria. 
Despite tragedy and persecution of vibrant underground churches growing, God opens up doors of opportunity for the gospel to go forth. Now I think for some that we read the first part of this verse and say, this is great. God, give me an open door. But realize there's a second part of what Jesus is saying here. God shuts doors just as well. That's what he says at the end of verse 7. He shuts and no one opens. Now, I think for us, that can be a problem at times. We're seeking to go in a certain direction, praying about it, and we think, oh, this is the way to go, and suddenly the Lord shuts the door. And you go, no. But we don't take no for an answer. And we buy that car that we can't afford, or we we start to date that non-Christian that we shouldn't be hanging around with, and our life is miserable, and we say, God, how could you let this happen? I didn't do it. You did it. I had that door shut. You went around. You went somewhere else. Listen, God shuts those doors for very good reasons. He knows what's best for us. He knows what will help us and what will harm us. God is sovereign. It's interesting that he says in verse 8, I know your works. That means a couple things. First, it means he's certainly aware of everything that you're doing and serving him. None of that goes unnoticed. But secondly, he also knows about the works that he has set before you that you're yet to discover, things he wants to do in your life and through your life. And as you serve him and, and, and draw close to him, he will lead us and guide us and open doors and shut doors to get us in that place where he wants us to be. You know, Paul had a door shut on him in, in Acts chapter 16, verse 7 through 9. Paul writes, After they had come to Mysia, uh, they tried to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. He says the Spirit did not permit them. Now, Paul could have said, well, the Spirit didn't permit us, but we won anyway because we thought it would be really cool. And we want to kind of hang out there. No. They were, he was submissive to the Spirit's leading. And why? What happened? Why was the door shut? Acts chapter 16, verse 9. Paul writes, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. One door was shut because there was another door that God wanted to take him through to get the gospel in a different place. Again, we need to make sure that we're not knocking down a door that God has shut and we're not opening or, you know, or trying to shut a door that the Lord has opened. And I think there's a way to know the difference. I think... To really know if a door is opening for us, there would be an absence of strife. You won't be striving. That's a good indication to me that God is doing something. He's working in some way. There'll be an absence of strife or striving. Now, that doesn't mean there won't be hard work involved. In fact, Paul spoke of laboring to the point of exhaustion. But there's a difference between hard work and striving to make something happen. See, if the Lord is telling us there's a lot of open doors out there and we just need to be looking for them, then we need to be praying, Lord, help us to see those doors of opportunity. Lord, help us to to go through those doors that you open up for us. Listen, the Lord desires that we produce fruit in our life. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples, John 15, 8. And the way to do that is to be sensitive to the leading and the guiding of his Spirit and walking through those doors when he opens for us. Maybe a door opening to you or me is a door of friendship. Maybe it's someone you've known for years and you get back in touch with them. It may that God's opened a door to share the gospel with them. Listen, every, every job you go to in your place of work is an open door. It's your mission field. 
The person you speak to at a grocery store is an open door. Your classmates at school is an open door. The other parents on the kids' soccer team is an open door. You, you know, the people that, that read your post on social media, that's an open door to share the gospel. Again, the challenge is for us to walk through those doors. Now think of Joseph. You know, he was sold into slavery by his brothers. He was unjustly accused by Potiphar's wife, thrown into prison. Did he just sit back and go, woe is me, you know, I can't do anything here? No. When the butler and the baker, but not the candlestick maker, came to him, <laughs> Joseph noticed that the butler and the baker, they were sad. And he tells them their dreams, and he, but he sought to minister to them, to, to, to touch them. There was a door open to him. I wonder what would happen if tomorrow morning we started noticing people around us and simply asked them, hey, are you okay? How can I pray for you? Even non-Christians appreciate prayer, you know, when you offer that to them. Yeah, man, you're praying for me? I mean, I appreciate that. How many more opportunities would spring out of just that one opportunity? Just sharing the hope that we have to those around us. Now, for some, that's easy for them to do. I think their personality, the way they are, they have no problem walking up to a complete stranger and sharing Christ with them. For others, it can be difficult. Maybe we're a little bit more reserved and and fear can keep us from walking through that open door and maybe we're afraid that what they're going to ask you or what they're going to say in return and you kind of just don't know how to respond. But that's when we need to remember what Jesus said in Acts 1.8. You shall receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. See, we need to remember that God is faithful to empower you in those situations in order for you to handle it. It's like the story I heard about Billy, great Christian kid who started college and he would bring his Bible to class and sit it on his desk while a science teacher was an atheist, devout atheist. And all semester long, he would mock Billy and, and say things that would make fun of his faith and fun of him. And finally, towards the end of the semester, he decided he would once and for all show young Billy that God did not exist. So the teacher proposed an experiment. Reaching into his refrigerator, he pulled out a raw egg and held it up. He said, I'm going to drop this egg on the floor. Gravity will pull it towards the floor, and this egg will most certainly break apart. Looking at Billy with this challenge, he said, Now, Bill... I want you to pray a prayer right now and ask your God to keep this egg from breaking when it hits the floor. If he can do that, then you have proven your point and I'll have to admit there is a God. After pondering that challenge for a moment, Billy slowly stood up to pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that when my teacher drops the egg, it will break into a hundred pieces. And also, Lord, I pray that when that egg does break, my teacher will have a massive heart attack and die right then and there. Amen. After a unison gasp from the class, they sat in silent expectation. For a moment, the teacher did nothing. And then last, he looked at Billy. Then he looked at the egg. Without a word, he carefully picked up the egg, put it back in the box and back in the refrigerator, (laughs) sat down. So as we step out in faith, as we go through those doors that God opens, he is faithful to give us the wisdom, to give us the words, and the power of His Holy Spirit to speak forth, to minister to those around us. Now I have to say, sometimes it's not fear of rejection that keeps us from taking that step, or even the fear of failing. It's simply just the fear of not wanting to go out of our comfort zone. 
But the bottom line is, especially in the times in which we're living in, we must make ourselves available to the work of the Lord. And yes, he may put us in places of vulnerability. But remember, Christ put himself in a place of vulnerability as well. He knew that people would would not listen to his words. He knew that people would mock him. He knew that people would twist his words. Yet he still loved them and opened himself to them to reach to them. See, to the Christian, God says no comfort zones allowed, especially again during the time in which we're living. Someone once wrote, church is not to be a parking lot, but a launching pad. I think that's good. Now this brings us to the third reason this was a great church. Look at verse 8. Jesus says, I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door. No one can shut it. For you have a little strength. Let's stop there for a moment. That's number C, or letter C. You have a little strength. The third reason this was a great church. That word little. In the Greek, it's a word micros. It's where we get our English word microscope or microorganism or microwave or microbiology or micromanage or microsoft or microphone or micro... You get the picture. It means very small. Very, very small. Small in number, small in quantity, small in dignity. That's small. And that's the reason Jesus had opened this door of opportunity to them which no man could ever possibly shed is because they were small in number. They were small in quantity and small in dignity, but God would do big, great things. Now, doesn't that seem like a contradiction? Because we have the natural tendency to think that Jesus only looks for the most talented and the most strongest gifted person to use. But more often than not, it's those with a little strength that Jesus wants to bless. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven: God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. God's people have never been the numerical majority, but we've been more than conquerors. Think of one man, Abraham, went out with his servants and defeated the armies of four kings. Or Gideon, I mean, his army got down to 30 and he defeated an army so vast that the Bible says that all their people of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number as the sand by the seashore in multitude. And Gideon's army of 300 defeated them. Elijah, one man, stood against 450 prophets of Baal. After three years of public ministry, Jesus had maybe 120 faithful disciples, yet those 120 turned the world upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the little strength that this church had, Philadelphia was a powerful church used by God. Now, why does God work this way? Well, Paul gives us insight in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. He says, We now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. You see, in that way, God gets all the glory. In that micro, in that smallness of small in man's eyes, that God gets all the glory when he works in and through our lives. Because God works in spite of our weaknesses and in spite of our frailties. Paul said to the apostle, I mean the Lord said to the apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, My grace is all you need. My power works best in weaknesses. So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults and hardships 
persecutions and trouble that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Listen, sometimes God allows and chooses to use weak things. He allows us to go to some very difficult times. Some very troubling situations in our lives. Illnesses, hardships. Just to show how strong He really is. There, there are those who say God doesn't give us more than we can handle. I have to disagree. I've had been given more than I can handle many times in my life. But I recognize it's God who handles it through me. It's not me. I'm weak. But He is strong. And the Lord is looking for those that He can show His, his strength and empower through. Second Chronicles 16.9 The eyes of the Lord search a whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. Now the fourth reason, this was a great church, the Lord says in verse 8, they have kept my word and they have not denied my name. Man, this is so important. We're living in, in a day and a time where, where biblical illiteracy is at an all-time high. According to Lifeway Research, a study was done that showed that only 45% of people who attend church read their Bible more than once a week. 40% read the Bible occasionally, maybe once or twice a month. Almost one in five churchgoers say they never read their Bibles. That's in the church. That's a problem. Because the Bible warns that one of the signs of the last days of the end times is that there will be false teachers and false prophets and false apostles and even lying wonders. That's why now more than ever we need to keep and know the Word of God. C.S. Lewis gave this warning years ago when he said, if you do not listen to theology, that will not mean that you have no ideas about God. It means that you have a lot of wrong ones. And I would say, if you don't read God's Word, doesn't mean that you'll have no ideas about God. It means you'll have a lot of wrong ones. See, the, the church of Philadelphia guarded and protected their time spent in studying and obeying God's Word. And not only that, verse 8 says, and you have not denied my name. Man, are we not seeing today places at seminaries that are blatantly denying the deity deity of Jesus Christ, pulpits across America. Here is a church, a group of believers that Jesus said, you've been proven faithful. You've not denied my name. You proclaimed who I am, the the God-man who died for the sins of the world. Now Jesus says, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father who is in heaven. If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father who is in heaven. Here was a church that they would not deny his name no matter what circumstance they, they came to or came across. This church has been labeled many things. Some call it the missionary church. Some call it the, the, the church that's alive. These are all accurate. The serving church. I like to call it the revived Bible-believing church. Because that, that's the very thing that the Lord Jesus emphasized is that they have kept my word and have not denied my name. They got into the Word, and the Word got into them. They didn't put it to one side. They didn't look to, to secularism. They, they looked to the Word of God. Now, this brings us to our second point. We'll go through these a little bit quicker. As a result of this great church, the Lord promises them four things. First, A, the Lord promises vindication. Look at verse 9. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. First, Jesus says here that there's, there's these first century Jews. They're saying they're, they're Jews, but they're really not. 
They're the synagogue of Satan. They were Jews physically, but, but they aligned themselves with the pagans and wanting to put the Christians to death, and, and they attempted to stamp out Christianity once and for all. Jesus says they're not really true Jews. They're, they're working from the synagogue of Satan. And again, as I mentioned earlier, Satan does not want to see people come to Christ. So most of the time, there's always going to be opposition. And an open door to share the gospel, even though it's an effective door, will almost always produce opposition. Listen, if you're getting opposed, and you know you're on the right track, spiritual opportunities are always met with opposition and obstacles. Because wherever God has his church, Satan has his chapels or his synagogues as well. It's interesting, the phrase, the synagogue of Satan... It's referred to twice in the message of Christ to the seven churches. In his message to the church of Smyrna, the, the, the suffering church, and now into the church of Philadelphia that we're looking at now. Only two churches out of the seven that Jesus said only complimentary things to say about them. Just a reminder, when we're on the right track, when we're going through the right doors, when we're, we're living the word of God, the devil is going to try and come against us. And it's interesting here that the opposition came from religious people. Some of the most ardent critics and harassers of the Apostle Paul were religious Jews. And religion can do that. You know, I don't try to defend religion. As a follower of Jesus Christ, it's not about religion. We know it's about a relationship with him. Big difference between the two. Paul, who was once Saul of Tarsus, was very religious. So much so he's blinded by his religious beliefs that he went around and, and hunted down Christians and sought to kill them. But Saul, the religious man, became the apostle Paul. He was a man who loved the Lord and loved his fellow man and sought to bring them to Christ. But know this, there will always be those critics that will oppose the gospel. There will always be those that will come against evangelism. That doesn't mean to stop sharing your faith. It just means expect opposition. But Jesus says, you're going to be vindicated. Look at verse 9. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. I love that. Especially when I listen to those in the world mock and put down the things of God and I see the hatred for the things of God. We know that the Lord promises vindication. That doesn't say they're going to be worshiping them. They're going to be worshiping. They'll be at our feet. And listen to this. Paul writes this in Philippians 2, 10 and 11. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So when Jesus says, indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you, there will come a time when every knee is going to bow before Jesus Christ. And we'll see that. And every knee will confess either, yes, you are Lord, or oh, no, Jesus, you are Lord. And Jesus is saying, hang in there. Hang into the persecution. Hang into what you're going through. Because one day, the ones that are going to show up before my throne, he's going to, they're going to say, oh, no, Jesus is Lord. And they'll get rightly what's coming to them. Vindication. The second promise Jesus gives in verse 10, the Lord promises preservation. I don't know if you've read this or not. I just read it recently. Back in January, a David Whipple of Utah revealed that he found an old hamburger from McDonald's that he purchased back in 1999 in his coat pocket. He hadn't read the coat, wore the coat in 21 years. He pulled it out, and that burger looked exactly the same as it did when it went into his pocket. 
Tell me there's a lot of preservatives in that burger. Listen, Jesus promises to preserve us. Look at verse 10. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell in the earth. What is the hour of trial? Chapters 6 through 19 of the book of Revelation. Time of Jacob's trouble. The great tribulation period. Seven year period which will end with the return of Jesus Christ. The promise to this church is that Christ will preserve them. That he will keep them from that hour of trial. Clearly Jesus is saying this church will be raptured before the great tribulation begins. He doesn't say I will keep you through it. He says I will keep you from it. We as Christians will not go through the great tribulation period. Next, the third promise that Jesus gives is found in verse 11. He says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. The third promise, he's coming quickly. Now, quickly does not mean soon. Rather, it has the idea of suddenness. It doesn't mean he's coming immediately, but his coming will be all of a sudden. We've talked about this before. It's like a drag race, and the cars are revving up, and their engines are running, and there's a red light, and it turns yellow, and then it turns green. He's coming quickly. And I believe, man, that, that, that light is yellow right now. And Jesus is coming quickly. It'll be in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, as the Bible says. And that really is a promise and the hope we have as a church. As a church, we're not looking for the great tribulation or the Antichrist. We're not looking to go through the great tribulation. In fact, nowhere in Scripture do you find the words, gird up your loins, Grit your teeth and clench your fist because a great tribulation is coming and, and you're going to go through it. We don't read that. No, what do we read? Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now understand, prophetically speaking, the Philadelphian church represents the revived church, the church that has returned to the Word of God. This is the church that will be raptured, his true church. It's not a denomination. It's not any local church. It's the, the church throughout the world. Those who profess Christ as their Lord and as their Savior. Jesus goes on, verse 11, Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. We've talked about this recently as well. Several crowns mentioned in Scripture. They're given to you at the reward seat of Jesus after the rapture. We're standing there. It's, it's the, the beamed seat of Christ. I think the crown Jesus is referring to here is a crown of rejoicing, a crown that, that you get for winning souls. Paul wrote this in 1 Thessalonians two nineteen and 20. For what is our hope, our crown, our crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. So there will be crowns given to us at the reward seat. He's going to give you the crowns that you've earned. So what does it mean when he says, let no one take your crown away? How can they take it if you haven't got it yet? Well, here's what I think Jesus is saying. I think he's saying that, that, you know, if you don't go through this open door that I've set for you, someone else will. And my work will be accomplished. That person will take the crown that you could have rightly earned, but... But you're not going to get it. It's not a rebuke. It's a way of encouraging and saying, listen, get all you can get. Do all that you can do for me. It's an incentive. See, since the church will not fail, why not be a part of its victory? Be a soul winner. And finally, the fourth promise is found in verse 12. It's a promise of ownership. Look at verse 12. 
He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. No, God writes his name on the things that he owns. Not because he gets his stuff confused with other people's stuff. I think it's more like, like you know, the, the, the cartoon, the, the animated cartoon, Toy Story. You look at the toys on the bottom of the feet of the toys that says Andy's. The toy belongs to Andy. It's ownership. We belong to God. It speaks of a permanent relationship. Jesus says, as a Christian, when you arrive in heaven, I will write on you three names. The name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, and I will write on him my new name. So you're saying, Pastor Tom, we're going to have tattoos? I, I don't know. <laughs> what I'm saying is somehow Jesus is going to mark us for all eternity. So that wherever we go in all the vastness of God's new creation throughout eternity, we will bear those three names. Let us leave it up to God how those names will be written on you and where. But another way to think about this, in our culture, when a wife gets married, she takes on the name of her husband. And she lives in the same home as her husband. So she takes his name, which is his father's name for generations, and she has a new address. So the same way, we the church is a group that will have these names in heaven for all eternity because we are the bride of Jesus Christ. And finally, Jesus closes his letter to this church the same way he does the others. In verse 13, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what are we hearing, church, this morning? Is the Lord opening a door that he wants us to walk through? Is he, has he closed the door that he's telling you, quit trying to knock it down? <laughs> Is his spirit telling you what doors are open for you to serve him, both in the church but especially in the world? I would very much like our church to be like Philadelphia. God has given us opportunities to reach out to the world and we can start right here in our own community. Again, you know, we got... The opportunity tonight, an open door for the gospel to go forth to a, a, a rush of hope and great glory in the Harvest Crusades. God will open up opportunities to share the gospel. We just have to walk through them and we need to pray for doors of ministry to take place within our lives with the people that we come in contact with. Perhaps the Lord is opening a door of opportunity for you to get involved in ministry in the church. Maybe it's a children's ministry. You kind of go, no, 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 Lord, I don't want to go through that door. And the Lord said, it's open. You need to come through. Maybe it's a worship ministry. Maybe God's given you a gift of worship. Maybe it's the usher ministry. Maybe it's a security ministry. Maybe it's an online ministry with all that going on now. Doors that the Lord opens up for ministry, look at those opportunities and go, Lord, I'm going to walk through that and see what you have for me. As we close now and enter a time of communion, If you haven't yet, the first and foremost door you need to go through is the door of Jesus Christ. He says he stands at the door, knocks of our hearts. If any man hears his voice, opens the door, he will come in and have fellowship with us. You need to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Then after that, we just need to to look to him to see what doors he'll open for us. We're going to enter into communion. And really, communion is a time that, that, that Jesus instituted by by taking a piece of bread and saying, this is my body. He took the cup and said, this is my blood. We're told that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we will claim the Lord's death till he comes. Now, 
We talked about this a couple weeks ago, that the bread doesn't actually become his body and the, the juice doesn't actually become his blood. When he said these things, he was alive. I mean, how could those elements be his actual body and blood? He was simply saying, these are a symbol of my body. It's a symbol of my blood. So as we come to the table, we see this bread as a reminder of his broken body and the juice as a reminder of his blood that was shed. And really, there's only one reason for us to observe the Lord's Supper. It doesn't wash away a single sin. You know, some people believe, well, if I take communion, my sins are forgiven. That has nothing to do with that. Jesus took care of that upon the cross. Yeah, we need to confess our sins. God is faithful. He's just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But two reasons. We are reminded what Jesus did upon the cross, number one. And number two, we're reminded of the fact that Jesus is coming again. And that's where you partake. And, and it, it should inspire us to live a better life for him, to refocus on what's important. Yeah, and to examine our hearts and make sure that, that we're not, there's nothing that needs to be cleaned out. We want to be ready for his return. So let's pray and let's, let's just seek the Lord during this time. Father, we thank you for this time of communion, Lord, to remember what you did upon the cross for us. Taking our sin, our shame, our guilt, and replacing it with forgiveness and hope and life. Thank you that your blood was shed, Lord, to wash away all of our sins. Lord, even when we make mistakes and even when we blow it, even when we, we do sin, maybe not even purposely, Lord, just, just uh, we, we, we did and we didn't realize it until it was over, Lord. We thank you that we can be cleansed washed clean as we just confess it to you and say, Lord, I'm sorry. I thank you for the cross and I thank you that you died for that sin. And help me, Lord, not to go that way again. Lord, I don't want one more sin in my life that you would have to die for. But Lord, you know us and you know our hearts and you know that we do fall, Lord, and we do fail. And we thank you for that forgiveness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that we can come to this communion table and remember just that, the grace you've given to us and the mercy. Bless this time we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.